0: Welcome to the WineVest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is the founder of the ultimate platform business for cheese lovers. His name is Edward Hancock. He is the founder of Cheese Geek, a cheese subscription service based in the UK. Now, whilst Edward has always had a passion for cheese, he actually started his career in finance, climbing up the ladder of a top hedge fund in London. He left that behind in 2017 but applied his quant skills to the world of cheese and has built a really interesting proposition. In this episode, we discuss his career, why he loves cheese, and the problem he was trying to solve when he started Cheese Geek. The future is bright for the company. Do check out their website at thecheesegeek.com. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Edward Hancock, welcome to the podcast. Edward, we're going to start with your
1: background. So where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? Yeah, thanks for having me. And great to have the conversation. Um, I grew up in southwest London, which was actually where I've spent pretty much the entirety of my days. I've lived a sheltered existence. I was born in Kingston, grew up in New Malden, Rains Park and Kingston, and then moved to Putney, and now I'm in Wandsworth Common. So, I really haven't moved very far from where I fell from the tree, as it were, so I went to King's Wimbledon as well, and so schooling was all around there, and then made the huge leap out of s w to go to Charterhouse and then an even bigger leap to Newcastle uni, which was for me like travelling the other side of the world, I suppose, yeah, and then after uni went into finance and had a very traditional career in finance, what were you doing in finance? How did you sort of start your career yeah, so i um When it came to A-levels, I wanted to do something different. I was probably slightly bored by the existing subjects I'd spent the last half a decade doing. Economics looked exciting, it looked quite interesting, and it looked like something I could maybe apply to the real world. So I did economics for A-level and really enjoyed it. So then I went on and did that at uni as well. A lot of it was also because my mum was quite traditional in terms of she wanted me to have a stable, predictable career. So that kind of accountant, doctor, finance, career trajectory. So that probably had a bearing as well on it. She wanted me to go into accounting, but that was far too dry for me. So economics seemed like a decent compromise. So I read economics at Newcastle and then probably didn't apply myself quite as much as I could have done. And a 2-1 from Newcastle doesn't put you in the top tier of graduates. You know, not bad, but not top tier. So I ended up starting at the bottom rung of the ladder when I, when I came out of uni, joined a small hedge fund as a junior fund admin. And yeah, started at the bottom rung of the ladder, but learned a lot. And actually, I think now looking back, it's a cliche. Everyone always says, you know, you learn a lot from the journey. But I think starting from the bottom and working my way all, all the way up to the top has, has been a great lesson and probably stood me in good stead for a lot of the things that have followed since. And so how many years did you work in finance before you founded The Cheese Geek? Uh, So I joined Chamomile in 2008, I think, or 2007. It was actually just before the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. December 2006, actually, I think it was. So I had about 18 months of the old world of finance, which was wining and dining and lots of lavish gifts every Christmas. I got the back end of that and then went into the new financial world, which was post-financial crisis. And I've stayed at the same business until 2017, 2018, at which point I moved to more of a consulting role with them because I wanted to explore, you know, this cheese opportunity. In that time, I went from the bottom rung of the ladder and I made it up to becoming a fund manager. We built a systematic trading strategy. I became a chartered financial analyst. So things were going to plan. My mum was delighted, absolutely delighted. But sadly, I was to then throw a spanner in the works (laughs) and have a slight change of direction.
0: Well, let's explore that spanner and and let's introduce the Cheese Geek. What problem were you trying to
1: solve when you started? What happened was my local cheesemonger closed down. And for the first time, I was forced to think outside the box when it came to buying my cheese. So my nickname at school and uni was the Cheese Monster. There's definitely this sense of inevitability that I would have ended up in cheese, but probably not via the route I did. Is that because you like cheese rather than anything? Love cheese, yeah. Absolutely love cheese. And I suppose at some point, there's always that, I call it risk, but there's always that chance that you end up doing something that you love rather than doing something that you think you probably should. Not everyone always makes that step. But I guess for me, it happened because my work in finance had become less manual. You know, it was an automated trading strategy. So I had more time to think about other things. But like I said, my local cheesemonger closed down. So I, I had to start thinking, well, where do I get my cheese fix from? And I realized traipsing around London that the experience just wasn't that great. And coupled with that, I thought, well, if I loved chocolate, I'd go to Hotel Chocolat. If I loved craft beer or wine, there was great consumer brands that were innovating in those sectors and industries that had really lifted that product to another level over the years but cheese was still super traditional. So you had to go around London, go to your cheesemonger, And most people will understand what I say here. When I say you get that feeling when you walk in, there's 60 cheeses in front of you. You can't pronounce most of them. You have no idea what they are. And the whole experience is slightly detached. And it's very, it was just something that I felt could be done better. And so I decided to do it better. I have a great
0: deal of sympathy with that feeling as you walk into a cheese shop. I mean, it's not a dissimilar feeling to when you walk into a jewellery shop. The whole thing is quite overwhelming. So what were you trying to set out to do with the Cheesecake?
1: Yeah, so it was really accessibility. If there's one word that I'm trying to get to here, it's accessibility because you have this huge disconnect that people obviously know cheese, they love cheese. Over 80% of us eat cheese at least once a week. 91% of us eat cheese full stop. So it's a massive industry. No one needs to introduce what cheese is. And yet, it's also one of those cheeses where people often apologize for not knowing much about cheese. You know, you walk into a cheese shop and go, look, I'm, I'm not a cheese expert. I don't know what I'm doing. It's the same with wine. You have this defensiveness off the bat. And that's even for people that have a cheese monger near them. So accessibility was the big one. It's how can we get people, the general public, not just the cheese connoisseur, Or the cheese guru, but how do we get the average person engaging more with cheese and particularly British cheese? And I think the second element to that is the fact that, unlike many other products like coffee or chocolate, cheese is produced in the UK. I mean, we produce over 750 varieties of cheese. So it's a product that's on our doorstep. And for me, it was about how do we connect those two things up? The customer who loves cheese, doesn't know much about it, finds it a bit daunting, and the cheesemaker which is, you know, we're going through a renaissance in cheesemaking in the UK. And
0: so how much of your stock is UK-based and how much is imported? And then of those, you know, 750 various cheeses, how would you sort of categorise them? Are there sort of broad categories that you can put them in to kind of make it easier to go?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Because so around 85% of our cheese is British Mm -hmm. across the year. That's even higher away from Christmas. At Christmas Regardless of how much we want to push British cheese, people still kind of want their Contes and their, you know, Brie de and some of those classic Christmas cheeses, Vacherin. But certainly eight to nine out of 10 of our cheeses are British. In terms of classifying the cheeses, well, this is sort of one of the big things that we worked on from the very first few days of me setting up this business was I wanted it to be a journey for a customer rather than just a one-off transaction. So I want to see how can we get people trying new cheeses, exploring new cheese. In doing that, we had to understand how to classify cheeses so that people were getting a nice, varied, balanced selection every month. And so I applied the concept of algorithms from my life in finance to cheese, and that's how our allocation system works. So every cheese that we have is tagged with a huge number of, well, tags, and they describe that cheese and they ensure that that cheese fits nicely Into a selection of another four cheeses that complement it and work together. And you know that they they haven't been, the customer hasn't had those cheeses before. And so these algorithms run to ensure that everyone gets the perfect cheese. And so by getting five cheeses that are of variety, so soft, hard, blue, strong, more mild, you're really opening people's eyes up to all these varieties. And I think on a very broad level, though, top level, how do we classify cheese? Well, it's probably soft cheese, hard, mature cheese, then crumbly territorial cheese, and then your sort of washed rind cheeses like a pois that really have a good pong. And then blue cheese is probably top level, but we do a lot more on top of that, you know, overlaid. And
0: what struck me about your business is, I mean, we spend a lot of time looking at businesses that are as a service. So, you know, software as a service or investment as a service. And what I rather liked about the Cheese Geek is that it's like cheese as a service. It's a subscription model. You pay whatever it is, £30 a month, and your cheese is delivered to you. Give me an idea of your business. Like What percentage of your sales is on a recurring basis and what percentage is sort of one-off? And which bit do you sort of target in terms of your marketing effort?
1: Yeah, so around a third of our customers are on some form of subscription. But we have two types of subscription, a gift subscription that ends after a set or predetermined amount of time, and then a rolling subscription, which is, I guess, the subscription in the truest sense of the word, which requires cancellation. And um, that proportion of it is around 14 15%. In terms of overall subscriptions, we'd love to get it up to 50% or beyond. But we're also very realistic that, as a product, we are very appealing as a gifting product around christmas father's day um, those one off moments. so a lot of our marketing spend and attention is placed on how can we convert a one off purchaser or recipient onto a subscription because that's when we can really add the most value and in terms of adding value there's the subscription model is hugely beneficial when it comes to our industry and and what we're doing for a huge number of reasons. I think on the first side of it, it's, it's creating that experience. So what we're trying to do is rather than you come in, you buy five cheeses, you eat them, they taste pretty good. And by next Wednesday, you've forgotten what they were called. And it's kind of like all gone, consigned to the past. We're trying to create a lasting relationship with cheese. So you try your five cheeses... They're all stored in your app. You can rate them, you can write notes on them. Uh, Over time, we can start building correlations between the cheeses that you've liked and other cheeses you might like. And so it creates this ongoing buildup of information and learning that is productive and useful to the customer, but really adds that level of experience and and prolonged experience. On the other side, in terms of a logistics side, with cheese being a perishable product, having such a clear pipeline of, of demand in terms of our subscribers, enables us to have cheese come in and go out very quickly. And so it helps with stock. We've got incredibly low wastage. It's around 1.5% through the year, which is which is tiny given the volumes that we do. And it, it just ensures that the customer is eating the freshest possible cheese. And we don't compare ourselves to an online cheese business in terms of how good our cheese tastes. You know, Our view is that we want our cheese to taste as good as even a physical bricks and mortar cheesemonger. And we have benefits there. We don't have to have display cheese. We don't have to cut one piece of it and then have the rest sit until another customer comes in. Our software ensures that we get through our stock very quickly. And the idea being that when you eat your piece of cheese, the chances are it's only been cut for the first time the day before. And that really makes a huge difference when it comes to the quality of the experience.
0: So on that operating side, as you mentioned, cheese is a perishable product and it degrades reasonably quickly. How do you manage the operations and distribution side of your business and getting great cheese to good people at the right time?
1: Yeah, it is a, definitely a challenge. And it's a challenge that's quite unique to us. I often think to myself, if I ever did anything like this again, which I definitely wouldn't, I'd choose a product that we could send on a two-day cheap courier service. And if it arrived five days later, it really wouldn't matter. Cheese, sadly, we have none of those uh, benefits. And on top of that, we can't really use a fulfillment center or outsource it because it's such a specialized operation that we run. And no one's ever really tried to do what we're doing at scale. So, really, what all of this meant was when the pandemic hit and we leveled up in terms of our revenue growth beyond what we were achieving before, we did have some growth pains simply because it wasn't a case of just upping our fulfillment center and them, you know, taking on more volume. We had to employ the people. We had to implement the systems that could handle those new levels of volume. And we had to scale the premises as well. So we had to do all of those things very, very quickly to be able to adapt to our new normal. So I think that was definitely a huge challenge. But in doing so and being forced to do that quickly, we are now in a position where we've got pretty incredible capacity. I'd say it's almost unparalleled, certainly pound for pound in the UK, in terms of the size of premises we have and the people we have. And the amount of cheese that we can actually get out is pretty impressive. But yeah, it is a challenge and it's a specialized element of the business. But where we're slightly more manual or intensive in that area, one area where we're very light in terms of intensity is our allocation, because that's run by software. So we have one operative that can pretty much run 50,000 allocations in a day, plus in a matter of minutes. So we're light in that area, but we're we're slightly heavier in in dispatch, yeah. I suppose that sort of builds or strengthens the value proposition because,
0: you know, if I wanted to try and nick your idea or if I want to try and copy your idea and build a sort of uh, comparable cheese distribution network, it's actually probably quite expensive, time-consuming, tiresome, and difficult. So that presumably entrenches some sort of in-value proposition within the business which I suppose leads me to the next question, which is, you know, how do you see the sort of value of your business? Is it in said distribution network? Is it with the relationship with your suppliers? Is it
1: the branding? Or is it the sort of superior software proposition? Well, you probably won't be surprised to hear me say a bit of everything. Mm -hmm. From very early on in the business, every decision we've made has been with a view to making it scalable. And we've not taken decisions short-term. We've often taken the the harder path that will enable greater long-term opportunity. And what I wanted to ensure was that three or four years down the line, we had a moat around us. And I think that's the key thing. We could have been less ambitious, but we would have reached this point and basically just been a cheesemonger. You know, on paper, we sell cheese. And so how do we protect ourselves from that? And I think the big things that we have in terms of what we do Like you alluded to, operationally it is challenging and it does require investment. But the tech stack that we built at the center of our business is also a huge part of that. We are the only business, as far as I'm aware, and I have looked, so I'm not just saying that. Um, I have tried to do my research here. As far as I'm aware, there's no other cheese business that offers a unique subscriber experience where you get different cheeses every month. So every other cheese club, you get the same cheese every month because that's the easiest thing to do it's the easiest thing to just have five cheeses you get in in bulk and you get sent out to everyone but we've deliberately made it hard for ourselves but what that now provides us is a clear usp and um, the tech also provides you personalization the insert in your box we even tell you the right order to eat your cheese in so all of these things these investments we've made up front have specifically been to create a business that's very hard to replicate unless you're going to invest huge amounts of money by which point you're actually probably if you're capable, just going to try and buy us because you know it's a lot of hassle, to be honest. And I think what was in our position or my position, what was fortunate is that I was able to set us off in that direction in terms of being able to finance the business and take that chance basically on myself, I guess you'd say, because you know it, it has required a lot more capital than it would require just to set up a standard cheese business. There's no doubt about that. But what that's all done is now create something that's definitely very unique and something that no one else is doing. I
0: presume it's a robust
1: B2C business. I wonder if you've explored a kind of B2B model. Yeah, so, I mean, we we have started to explore that because in reality, we have a lot of potential to scale in terms of we have capacity. So for us, it makes sense to utilize that capacity. So that is in the form of various things. So it could be white-label cheese clubs. We've had some recent, very... um, good developments in that area in terms of running uh, white label cheese clubs for big food media brands and corporations. But to answer your question in terms of B2B, absolutely. And the key for us is partnering with the right brands that sit parallel to us as a brand, where we can actually have an impact on the consumer at the end. So for us, what that means in practice is less of a priority is for us to just supply cheese to say, for example, a michelin star restaurant, which is then presented on a menu and on the plate, and you'd never know the cheese was from us. What we're more looking towards doing is partnering with, for example, like-minded wine bars, where we can supply the cheese, um, supply QR codes, and have more information or richer information for that consumer who's sitting there, they've got their nice wine, they've ordered a cheese board, they can QR code each of the cheeses, find out more information, On the maker where it's from, and and even link it ideally to their Cheese Geek app, put it on their wish list, rate the cheese once they've tried it. So it's that Vivino concept of enriching that cheese experience wherever it might be. And we want to reach every customer that's interested in cheese, whether that's in a wine bar, whether it's in a hotel, but we want to have our brand visible in that experience. And so that's really where we're going to next. And we have started, so we've recently started a relationship with Humble Grape, the wine bars. We've now signed the contract to run. I think I'm allowed to say this now. We've just signed with BBC Good Food wow. to run their Cheese Club. They have a similar thing with uh, with Leith for their wine. So that's a huge coup for us. They're the biggest food media brand in the UK. They've got kind of 77 million plus monthly page views and 25 million plus monthly unique users. So that gives an idea of where we can go with this. Because I guess ultimately that the bottom line is we're not trying to just become the cheese subscription business. That's where we're starting. But ultimately, what we're trying to become is the iconic cheese brand and reframe the relationship a customer has with cheese, wherever they're having that relationship, whether that's in a restaurant, a bar, even if it's from a supermarket or from us directly.
0: Changing tack, Edward, thinking about raising capital, because I know you're about to embark on your capital raising journey. The first question is, what doors have you been knocking on so far? Have you been tapping on the the friends and family door? Are you sort of looking more at the sort of angel investors or indeed the venture capitalists themselves?
1: We've had a couple of rounds with angels already, which was fantastic. And the great thing about angel round is it's not informal as such, but it's definitely lighter in terms of due diligence and how time consuming it is. Clearly running a business... It's difficult spending a huge amount of time going through due diligence and the process of raising like a series A and beyond, and so I think given our early stage as a business, it was good that we had a couple of angel rounds. Where we're moving into now though is we're looking more at venture capital because we really need to bring on um, strategic investors at this point. It's one thing getting a business you know from zero to uh, one point five two million it's another challenge getting a business from those numbers up to 20 million plus. So for us, I think what's really important now, as well as the, the funding, of course, it's what can that investor bring in terms of experience in that sector with that kind of business and taking them from two to 20, I think is the key thing.
0: Have you had to adjust your message to those investors? Have you had to change to tighten up your, your investment deck?
1: I think that for me, there's probably a couple of key differences that I've noticed between the two. With angel investors, the story is really, really massive. And if you can sell an angel investor on the story and what you're trying to do and how you're trying to change things, that's a lot of the battle done. Now, that's not to say the story is not important with venture capital, but with venture capital, there's a lot more box ticking. So you know, you're having to talk in more granular detail about total addressable market, what is the size of the opportunity? There's definitely box ticking that has come more to the forefront with these conversations. I've had very early stage conversations. I think that is probably one of the biggest areas of difference. I would say.
0: Yeah, I see. And then in terms of capital allocation, when and if you are indeed successful in the raise, sorry, when you are successful in, in raising the capital, um, how would you allocate it? Where do you think the pinch points of your business are then?
1: Yeah. So as you've picked up, we've come through an incredibly intensive period of what I'd say is building the foundations of the house. A lot of it is not visible. It's below ground. So it's the tech, it's the operations, it's the systems, it's all that kind of stuff. And I think the next phase for us is above ground. So it's the exciting bit because you you actually start seeing what you're building and the result of it. But really what that is, is that's um, revenue generation. It's the marketing. It's um, acquiring customers we have fantastic retention, we have low churn, we know we have a great product, Um, not because we have big egos, but because the customers tell us that, the numbers tell us that. So we know we have a great product and we know we now have the capacity and the the foundations. So now it, it really is a marketing and revenue generation acquisition challenge for us. Comparatively speaking, we've had very small marketing budgets to date. And so for us, some of the key metrics, I mean, we... For example, we're profitable on our first purchase in terms of our acquisition cost. So it costs us around £15 to acquire a customer and we'll make gross margin of around £22 on that first purchase. But going even further than that, our lifetime value on a non-subscriber is around £75 and on a subscriber, it's well over £170. So you can see there, just looking at those metrics gives you an idea of the opportunity if you get this right and how scalable the marketing spend or marketing budget would be in terms of acquisition. And then once you acquire the customers, like I said, we know that we retain them because our product's great. So that's the big focus, but that's not to say that there isn't still development work we want to do on our tech and on our product, but it's just that the larger part of our challenge or our focus rather over the next uh, 18 months is, is definitely a marketing and acquisition one. It's very interesting hearing you talk about your business Reminds me of something that another
0: podcast guest, like guy called William DeGale, fund manager at Blue Box Asset Management, and he pointed out that regardless of industry, the companies that are winning at the moment are the ones that look and feel like tech companies. And the way you talk about your business is as though it's a sort of technology business. You talk about cost per acquisition, churn, lifetime value. And I'm curious to know then, do you see yourself as a sort of tech-enabled? And how important is the technology aspect to your business? Could you have done
1: this business, let's say, 15 years ago? Um, okay, so could we have done the business 15 years ago? I would probably say uh, no. And there's a number of reasons, not just tech, even in terms of like food tech, in terms of having insulating the boxes and chilling your cheese down and mm-hmm. the reliability of couriers. So logistically, probably no. But on top of that, in terms of tech, a lot harder because, you know, you're relying on understanding your customer implicitly through the data. But on top of that, building our our algorithms and building Cassie is what we call our allocation software, cheese allocation software, mm. probably would have been a lot harder because of the systems that we use to build it, but also the people required to build it. Um, you know, so Salesforce has been around for a while, but really the longer something's around, the more specialists you get that are capable of doing what you need it to do. And so I think the simple answer to your question is probably not, or certainly not as effectively as we're doing it now. In terms of how I see the business, I mean, romantically, I started the business to get more people eating cheese, great cheese. So deep down, I'll probably always see this as a a cheesemonger. But the reality is that it's probably not. I mean, it's like is Bloom and Wild a florist? You know, technically, yes, but really what makes Bloom and Wild valuable is their tech. And what makes us valuable is our tech. And what that means in terms of real substance is that our tech enables us to scale this business, not just in the UK, but internationally. And it enables you to take a far larger proportion of the opportunity than if you didn't have the tech. And that's what it comes down to. I think you could build a really lovely family run business, selling cheese, having you know a bit of e-commerce, a website, tracks and data, and you're going to reach a point where you max out a nice number that probably earns you a decent living. But really, for me, that's not what I have built this business to do. I built this business to become sort of an iconic global brand, not because I want to have a legacy, but because I honestly want to get people eating great artisan cheese. And I think the world is going in that direction. I think we're probably five years away from it being really obvious that mass dairy is dead. There's not much money in sort of dairy farming from the perspective of selling milk. And the consumer will dictate that because the consumer cares a lot more about the product they're eating. They're far more conscious and they'll eat less but better when they do. And so I think really that's what we're trying to position ourselves to provide that service that the customer going to demand You know, already, but also progressively in, in the longer term. And I have this vision that one day, with our cheese geek app, you'll be able to travel to most countries in the world, and within 24 hours, be able to get local cheese sustainably sourced and farmed, sent directly to you wherever you might be. I think that's quite an exciting moonshot to have in my mind for the business. It's an exciting proposition indeed. Um, I want to go back to the the challenges
0: of being a, a first time founder because. You know, I wondered if any of your experiences, either a Charterhouse at Newcastle or indeed at the hedge funds, prepared you for the difficulties and the challenges of becoming a, a first-time
1: entrepreneur? Yeah. Definitely not. Definitely not. And um, things may have changed since I was at school and uni. They may have changed. I'm not sure if they have, but they may have done. But certainly when I was going through the education system, it was very structured and quite rigid. So you did your subjects, your classical subjects, you went to uni to read, everyone went to uni. So back then, you know, early 2000s, it wasn't really a question of whether you were going to go to uni or not. Everyone went to uni, there was no choice there. And the view was that you were going to go and read something and then go and get a job somewhere. And at no point throughout my entire academic development, did entrepreneurship or starting a business really come into the conversation at all as an option. I think my only exposure to entrepreneurship was my my uncle set up his own business. He didn't go to uni. He set up his own business, but I was, that was arm's length. I wasn't really aware of that. And I was young and didn't care about much else other than, (laughs) other than myself. And cheese, presumably. (laughs) And cheese. Yeah. So then you suddenly get in the position where you you think to yourself, wow, I think there's an opportunity here. Um, So this is, you know, 2017, 16, 17. I think there's an opportunity here but you realize that you've actually been provided with absolutely none of the tools to understand how to take this opportunity. It was literally Google. I mean, I just Googled everything. I Googled, you know, where can I get cheese? I Googled, how do you cut and wrap cheese? But beyond that, it was things like, how do you set up a company? How do you get your accounts done? What are the tax implications? You know, all of this, absolutely no idea. I just made it up as I went along. From my perspective, looking back, I think it would have been really great if at some point during my eight years of 13 to 22 or whenever it was, that there had just been some aspect of entrepreneurship as an option, or just an idea of what it takes to start up a business and what comes with that. Because I don't think that uni is for everyone. And I don't think the traditional path is necessarily for everyone. Um, And sometimes you realize very late. And luckily, I mean, I was in my mid thirties, but there's a lot of mistakes and pitfalls that I made that I wouldn't have made with some very basic mentorship or some very basic guidance. Yeah. That leads me on to the final question,
0: which is, you know, what advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs who may be coming out of school or coming out of university who are thinking about doing something on their own? And um, what advice would you give to them or what tools do they need to equip themselves with to be successful?
1: I think probably the, the one thing I'd say that's sort of just popped into my head. I've never actually been necessarily asked this question before. But what immediately popped into my head is to be brave with reaching out to people and to understand that sometimes those founders of massive businesses or iconic brands started at the same point that you might be looking to start. You take example of someone like Timo from Gusto, Timo Bolt, you know, he, he started up very humble beginnings, delivering the, these ingredient packs himself, grafting along. He's a lovely guy. I've spoken to, you know, he's very generous with his time. And I, I think from an early stage, I saw these people as inaccessible people that I couldn't reach out to. And I think I wish I'd been more forward and just reached out to as many as possible. And I know now that if I'd done that, I would have had a few come back and any advice they could have given me would have been invaluable. So I think that's probably one thing I would have done. And I would have searched out any mentorship programs, anyone out there offering advice. You just can't have enough advice and guidance. And then it's up to you what you do with it. But I I think I felt that I had to do it myself because no one would have any time to help me. And it probably led to a few mistakes and errors. Um, Certainly if people reach out to me in that way, I do everything I can to try and be sort of generous with my time.
0: Be brave and look for mentors. I like it.
1: Yeah. Edward Hancock, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot. Great to chat.
0: Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Ed Hancock from The Cheese Geek. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.